Well, hello again, church. We're back in Ephesians today. We're in Ephesians 2. If you have your Bible and you want to go to Ephesians 2, I want to invite you to do that. And if you don't have a, have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. We also have Bibles back on a shelf back there in the back of the auditorium here. So if you, if you don't have a Bible and you want to use one this morning and take it home with you, that's our, our gift to you, one of those Bibles. Just go back there and grab one. A few nights ago, during his uh, bedtime prayers, our four-year-old prayed for Mark Wallace, and it was a really sweet, sweet moment to see him interceding for somebody else, and we said amen, and I turned the lights off and closed his door, and I walked down the hallway, and I, I thought to myself, who is Mark Wallace? <laughs> and I asked Lindsay, I said, Lindsay, who's, who's Mark Wallace? She shrugged. She didn't know. And so I opened Foster's door back up, and I said, buddy, who's Mark Wallace? He looked at me really sleepy and tired and confused, and he didn't know what I was talking about. I said, you, you prayed for Mark Wallace. Who's Mark Wallace? And he said, not Mark Wallace, Mark Wallace. I said, Mark Wallace, Mark Wallace. <clears throat> it was Lindsay who got it. She said, he's not praying for Mark Wallace. He's saying more koalas, like <laughs> koala bears. He's praying for more koalas. Yes, he said, Mark Wallace. Apparently, earlier that day, he and Noble had seen some of the news footage of the Australian wildfires and the many animals that had lost their lives in addition to, to people. And some about that scene had really stuck with him, had a grip on him. You know, something about it was so heavy on his little four-year-old heart that he took it to God that night in prayer and asked for more koalas. You know, I think in his own four-year-old way, he was wrestling with the question of Psalm 89 that's asked there, who can live and not see death? Or who can escape the power of the grave? In some ways, I think it's that question that leads many of us, if not most of us, to religion. To, to faith, to spirituality, to searching for more. It's the way in which we are haunted by this specter of death that looms over our lives that leads us to long for something more, some power beyond that one. And as we search the pages of Scripture like we'll do this morning, and as we go to God in prayer, this one word comes reverberating back through, to us through time and space, and that word is resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from death to life proves that death is not insurmountable. In fact, if you are reading Ephesians through right now, and if you are back in Ephesians 1, you know that Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1 ends with that message, resurrection, that Jesus is elevated from death above all other powers, that they are all placed under his feet in the resurrection. But then Ephesians 2 shifts. And Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1, introduces us to the other thing that Scripture has to say about death. And that is that death is not only something that looms over the end of our lives, but that death is a power we are up against every day of our lives. And that's how we enter chapter 2 with that knowledge. So let's read in chapter 2, starting in verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world 
and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them, the dead, at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and, and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Kind of a spooky passage. Stealing in death and wrath and punishment. And those two words that follow that, that first word, dead, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You know, dead is kind of a medical term where, where actually it feels odd to read it in something theological like Scripture, right? Except that it is laced through Scripture that death is often the term used to describe the way that we live. And those two words, transgressions and sins, now those are two words that we are more comfortable with as church people. And they are kind of church words, but they're really pretty simple. Sin is what we do that separates us from God. It is our failure that separates us from God. And transgression is our failure that separates us from others. And our transgressions and our sins, they do at times feel like failures. But not death, right? You know, I can remember a time or two where I have chosen to, do, <clears throat> excuse me, to do something I shouldn't do, sin or a transgression. But I can certainly never remember choosing death. And yet that's how Paul describes a life filled with transgression and sin. Death. This idea that you can choose between a dead life and a life life. That idea goes way back. It goes all the way back to Moses when he and the Israelites are in the wilderness wandering and they are preparing to enter the promised land. And Moses says this to them. This is, this is the choice he lays out before him. He says, this day, this is Deuteronomy 30, this day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now, choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice, hold fast to him, for the Lord is your life. And all of us, we're like the the fans in the room. It's like an episode of The Price is Right. And we're like cheering on, yeah, yeah, choose life. It's behind door number three, door number three, choose life. Choose the life that's really life. Choose a life that is grounded in the Lord. That's real life. Choose life. And then Moses chimes in because they're having difficulty making the choice. And he says, now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. In other words, you can do this. And we're all like, yes, you can do this. Choose life, door number three. And they choose door number two. Again and again, we see this play out where life is laid out before them so clearly and obviously, and they just can't choose it as hard as they try. And of course, they're still alive, even though they choose death. It's just that their choices end up leading to all of the things we often associate with death, destruction, separation, war, famine, exile, all the things we might group under that big label of death. My mom used to say it like this, they're still breathing, but the proof is in the pudding. You ever heard that? The proof is in the pudding, right? Their lives look like death. So why is it so hard for the people of God to choose good lives? 
You know, you hear preachers talk about living your best life now. Why is that so hard, though? It's a good soundbite, but looking at Moses and the Israelites, it seems like it may be impossible to choose your best life. Well, let's look back at this passage in Ephesians 2. We're going to throw it back up on the screen behind me. Paul says it is hard to choose life for two reasons. It's really hard to choose life, first of all, because of what he calls the ways of this world. Now, what's he describing there? You know exactly what he's talking about. The ways of this world are the things you see on Facebook, okay? All the trends, the cool things people are doing, the trips people are taking, everything that people, that people are wearing on their bodies or shoes, whatever it is, like all those things look really good. And on social media, they look really good, am I right? Because they're curated for social media. And so all those things that folks do, we find ourselves being drawn towards them. And Paul says, it's not just because like those things look nice. It's because they're like an earworm. If you look in verse three, that changes our very desires and thoughts. So the ways of this world are not neutral. And so we often tell ourselves, I can do this and it doesn't affect me. What Paul's saying is, no, when you do the things that everybody else is doing, it actually changes the way you think. And that's one reason it is hard to to choose life. But it's not just that you should be suspicious of the ways of this world. And if suspicion was all it took to choose a life that was really life, we would all be living our best lives now. But he says it's not just the ways of the world. The other problem is what he calls the ruler of the kingdom of the air or the spirit who is at work in those who are disobedient. In Ephesians 6, at the end of this book, he describes this host of powers that our struggle is really against. He says our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It is is against the rulers of this dark world. In other words, it's not just what other people are doing that gets you. It's these forces you can't see that wrap their claws around you and have this stranglehold on you, choking the life out of you, making it not only hard to choose real life, but maybe impossible. Roger McDaniel reflected back on his early childhood. He was in his late 70s at the time. He told this story, and he told a story about his dad, Johnny. His dad, Johnny, was a truck driver out of Cheyenne, Wyoming. And he was plagued by a lot of challenges in his life, but chief among those was alcohol. He was just an alcoholic. And Roger's stepmother, Johnny's wife, would often tell Johnny, you cannot come home if you're drunk. And if you do come home drunk, I want you to go straight to the garage and sleep it off. You better not come to the bedroom. And so Roger can remember his dad night after night, just stumbling in the front door drunk and heading straight for the garage, not even bothering going to the bedroom, just straight to the garage. And he said, finally, one time he worked up the courage to confront his dad on the back porch. And this is what he said. He said, I caught up with him on the back porch of the house. And I said to him, dad, Why do you do this? And he looked back at me and he said, it's inevitable. It's inevitable. Even the apostle Paul said he couldn't do the things he wanted to do. Remember he talks about this in Romans 7. What he wants to do is so clear. It's laid out right in front of him. He could just choose to do that. He would do it every time. But this is how he describes that feeling of being out of control. He says this, I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil's right there with me. 
For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, remember desires and thoughts, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. This is Paul. What a wretched man I am, he says. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? There's the word again. That's how he describes the human condition of having lives that are determined for us outside of our control, that are hollow and empty. In some ways, when you come to Ephesians 2, it's like um, coming to the therapist. We'll say Paul's our therapist. And we're at midlife, and we've had a pretty good life. We've done really well. Job pays well. Christmas bonuses are always really nice. Our family is succeeding. They're off at college now, doing, doing pretty good. And yet, I'm unhappy. My marriage is unsatisfying. I try to pray, and I just can't do it. I have no joy in my life. And I come to Paul, the therapist, and I say, what's wrong with me? He's just quiet. He says, what do you think? What do you think it is? And he says, I don't, you say, I don't know. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm paying you this money, Paul. Tell me, tell me what's, what's wrong. And he says, well, how does this feeling make you feel? And you say, Paul, I'm paying too much for this. Just tell me, tell me how it is. He says, you say, what's wrong with my life? He says, you really want to know? You say, yes, I want to know. He says, it's not really life. It's death. It's death. And then he smiles. And he says, but God but God. If no other words in this text grab your attention today, I pray that these words do. I mean, I hope you realize that it, it is only when we realize the depths and the sorrows, and the degree that death has a hold on our lives, that we begin to long for something outside of our life that can do something about it. And if it is up to me, I am simply incapable of choosing a better life. But as hard as I try, inevitably I choose door number two and I fall into these decisions that lead to death and destruction and separation in my life. And so I long for something else out there who can do something about it because I feel hopeless. And two words come reverberating back to us, but God. And the words that follow are some of the most beautiful in Scripture. These words have changed the course of human history. They started the Protestant Reformation. It was these words and some in Romans that captured the imagination of Martin Luther, who was so convicted by his death and sorrow, he could not see a way forward in life, but God spoke to him. And this is what we find as we read. <clears throat> but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love of which he loved us, made us alive with Christ, made us alive. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. 
And God raises us up with Christ and and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show to the world the incomparable riches of his grace in your life by what he's done for you. He's going to show the world the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. C.S. Lewis, most of you know the name C.S. Lewis. You probably know him because of the Chronicles of Narnia and the the series there. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe starts the Chronicles of Narnia. He also wrote a host of books about the Christian faith, and even his fiction, which seemed to be about children in a wardrobe and a lion, was really about God, and we all know that. Less known than the Chronicles of Narnia is a series called the Space Trilogy. Has anybody read the C.S. Lewis Space Trilogy in here? Yeah, a couple of hands, true believers. And um, like the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis is not about space, it's about God. But it follows this character, Ransom is his name. And Ransom travels to two distant planets. One of those planets is Paralandra. And on Paralandra, Ransom meets this woman, this mysterious woman. She's called the Queen. And the Queen has never been exposed to evil or sin. She is Paralandra's Eve. Okay? She exists in this world of perfect harmony between God and between everything God has created on this planet. And sin has never entered this world. And when Ransom arrives, another character arrives who brings with him evil and sin and begins to tempt the queen to make a terrible choice, to choose death over life. And it really does seem like that is what she is going to choose. Like we are watching Genesis play out again on this other planet, this fictitious planet. We're going to see it again. This woman will sin and they will fall. But she doesn't. She overcomes sin. She chooses life through the inner the intercession of ransom who defeats this evil on her behalf. And she she does, she she strives against evil for a time, and it does look like it's gonna overcome her, but she is victorious. And it's this beautiful scene at the end when when as reward for the queen who has overcome this evil, God brings to her the king, this man we haven't met yet, the Adam of this story. And they are united and they are placed as lords over this planet as God intended for them. Right? They are sovereign, king and queen, enthroned above this planet. And they're in perfect harmony with this planet and with God. It's this beautiful scene. And as Ransom watches this scene unfold, he's frustrated because the queen, she wrestled with evil and she overcame it. She wrestled with death and she defeated it. But the king, he didn't do anything. He's riding her coattails. And the king sees this happen, and I'll pick up with how Lewis describes the scene. Then unexpectedly, the king laughed. And his body was very big, and his laugh was like an earthquake in it, loud and deep and long, till in the end, Ransom laughed too, though he had not seen the joke. And the queen laughed as well, and the birds began clapping their wings and the beasts wagging their tails and the lights seemed brighter and the pulse of the whole assembly quickened and new modes of joy passed into them all. I know what he's thinking, said the queen, said the king, sorry, looking to the queen. 
He's thinking that you suffered and you strove and I have a world for my reward. And then he turned to Ransom and he continued, you're right, Ransom. I know what they say in your world, earth, about justice, for in that world, things always fall below justice. People never get what they really deserve. He said, but God, Ransom, but God always goes above it. Don't you see all is gift. All is gift. How true is that? I think those three words summarize our passage here this morning better than I can. You and I were dead, but all is gift. That God, by His generous grace, by His abundant mercy, by the riches of His grace and mercy and love, made us alive. Not because of something we had done, something that we could earn, but just because of His kindness, we're told just because of his grace. And that changes your story. And it changes my story. I'm going to go off script here, Russ. This is a dangerous moment. I was with a brother from this church Wednesday of this week. We were eating downtown at the cupboard. Maybe you've eaten at the cupboard before. So good. He works downtown, and we met, we met there. And we walked in. You know who we saw? We saw these two sweet ladies from this, from this church. I won't name them. They wouldn't want to be named. Just sweet ladies. And they were, they were far away from home. They live out here by the church, but they were down at LaRose tutoring with the Arias to Read program. And they had carpooled down there, and they were on their way back, and they decided they'd eat some of those good vegetables at the cupboard on their way home. And we walked in, we saw those, those sweet ladies, and we, we talked with them for a moment. And, and we laughed because I, I said, you know, the cupboard is good, but if there's two ladies that can outcook the cupboard, it's these two ladies, right? And I know that to be true because I've eaten potluck here many times. You're missing out if you're not here first Tuesday of the month with these ladies. And we laughed and they commented to this brother of mine about his beautiful family. And then he and I went and we sat down and they continued their meal. And, and then he and I got to talk. And the reason we were getting together is because he is facing this unimaginable sorrow in his life right now. He and his wife are up against the grip of death. And this sorrow just looms over them. And several times in the conversation, he was near tears at the prospect of what is to come next. His life just feels hopeless in this moment. And we talked about it, and I tried to encourage him, but I could tell him mean, he's just so crestfallen, just overcome by the grip of death. When we called our waitress, we saw the ladies leave, those sweet friends of ours, and we waved to them, and we called the waitress, and we said, we're re ready for the check. We've got to get back to work. And she said, oh, it's been taken care of. It's been taken care of. And I thought to myself, well, this just isn't going to do, right? I may be old-fashioned, but I'm supposed to buy the, the lunch, right? It was a gift. It was a gift. And here I was with this brother who was in the grips of sorrow. And you should have seen the smile that washed over his face with this small act of grace. It was like this inevitable gloom was hanging over him, but he walked out the doors of the cupboard because of this one glimpse of grace, prepared to face it. 
convinced that he could live in this world despite whatever may come to pass. You say, Eric, they just bought your lunch, right? Yeah, they did. And Christ has bought our souls through the death and resurrection of his son and the incomparable riches of his grace. He makes possible to you and me real life. And as you read on in Ephesians 2, you see this beautiful image of this multicultural unity that takes place in the church. But here's why it happens. It's not because we say anything fancy or do the right things. It's because we are united first in death and then by God's grace in his life. That we are common no matter our differences. We come together only because in this place, God is making you and me alive. And if you don't have that life, if the life you're living feels more like death, let me tell you, there is a way forward. And it is only made possible because of the grace of Jesus Christ. I invite you to join us in that grace and this waters of baptism behind me. Or if you'd like prayer, if you'd like us, this congregation together around you in prayer, I'll receive you down here, down front in prayer. We'll have shepherds in the back who'll pray over you. Let's stand and to sing to the God who is amazing in his grace. Everyone needs compassion, a love that's never failing. Let mercy fall on you.